Hello, welcome back to Slightly Foxed in Hoxton Square and our final quarterly podcast of the year. My name is Philippa Lamb and Foxed editors Gail Perkis and Hazelwood are here at the kitchen table with me. Hello both, good to see you. Hello. This time we've gone for a big name, George Orwell, but we'll be taking a fresh look at him following the recent publication of the first full-length study of his life and work in 20 years. Now, fascinatingly, this new biography by DJ Taylor draws on previously unseen material and also, crucially, first-hand accounts from the now fast-dwindling group of people who actually knew Orwell. So what more does it tell us about this driven and prescient writer? Well, who better to ask than DJ Taylor himself, who I'm delighted to say is with us. Welcome, David. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Now, I am hoping that we will also shortly have at the kitchen table with us Masha Karp, who's an Orwell scholar and former Russian features editor at the BBC World Service. Uh, she's author of George Orwell and Russia. As I say, she's held up. We're hoping that she'll she'll be with us very shortly. So, David, should we just kick off while we're waiting for her? Because I should say this is your second biography of Orwell, isn't it? You won the Whitbread Biography Prize for the first one. That was 2003? It's not unprecedented, actually, this coming back and having another go. And this is a completely new book. It's not just a revised edition. I was extraordinarily fortunate because over the last five, six years, two substantial caches of new material of letters to, to Suffolk, Suffolk girlfriends in the 1930s became available. How did that and, happen? Tell us. Well, it was, it it was one of those great biographers' quest tales in that Orwell wanted to marry a girl called um, Eleanor Jakes in Southwold in the 1930s, and she turned him down. And she turned him down because, according to her daughter, whom I knew, he was either too sardonic or too cynical. Okay. And she was a very spiritual woman, right. Eleanor. And Eleanor married his best friend, Dennis Collins. You Ooh, see. It was a real yeah. Jules et Jim thing going on in Southwold in the 1930s. And uh, Eleanor died in the early 1960s, a long time back, 11 years after Orwell. But I, I got to know her daughter, Susanna, who was very helpful, but slightly kind of reserved, played a straight back. So I used to go round to our house in Southwold. And there were various existing letters that you know, had already been printed out. So you knew they'd had I a knew, correspondence. I knew yeah. they'd had a correspondence, and I'd seen the pictures in the uh, photo album. And I used to say to her, Susanna, is there anything else? Is there any more material that I ought to know about? And then she'd look rather sort of wistful, and she'd say, well, you know, I've got the builders in at the moment. Uh, <laughs> but when they've gone, we'll go and look in Daddy's study, and we'll see what there is. And the builders were in for the seven years that I knew Susanna. And then then they died. And she died, rather, not the builders. And then it all got completely fascinating because uh, Bonhams, the auction house, were brought in to to clear the premises. And a man called James Glenny went, uh, this is the literal truth, he went into the woodshed and there on the floor of the woodshed was this old handbag, you know, with mouse droppings over it, scuffed up, worn and torn. And he was about to just throw it away. And he thought, I'll just have a look inside. And inside was a buff envelope on which had been written the words, burn after my death. Goodness. And inside that envelope were 19 letters of Orwell's tell wow. from the early 1930s. And they were good. They were well preserved, uh, very atmospheric. They told a lot about the relationship, all kinds of other things. And, um, and so but it then got more exciting because Richard Blair, Orwell's adopted son, yes. in an absolutely marvellous philanthropic gesture, agreed to purchase these for the archive, for the Orwell archive. And I can tell you, 
All our letters do not come cheap. No, I'll bet. They really do not. There's yeah. substantial investment of Richard's. And so it had been arranged that uh, there had been some sort of row between the family and Bonhams, and it took sort of 10 years for them to come out into the light. And I'd been chasing them all the time it's and reading up their books. It's yeah. Yeah. And so, anyway, so James Glennie, the man who discovered the, who was, was selling them for the Collins family, uh, was also organised the whole festival in North Norfolk. And it was agreed that the letters would be displayed cunningly interleaved so that not even anyone with a mobile phone could break the copyright, you know, by snapping them. Yes. I would give a talk on their significance and Richard would be there to conclude the deal for buying them. And as I was finishing my talk about Eleanor's letters and asked for questions, an old lady got to her feet in the back and said, this is all very interesting, but what about Brenda? You thought, and I said, Brenda? Well, no, no, I knew all about Brenda. <laughs> Brenda was Brenda Salkeld, another of these Suffolk girlfriends, who was the gym mistress at St Felix School in Southwold, who <laughs> all, also wanted to marry and who also turned him down. <laughs> so I said, well, Brenda's absolutely fascinating, but we're talking about Eleanor here, to which the old lady went, I am her niece. Okay. Sensation. You know, yeah. And then she goes, I have her letters. Oh At which so, point you really sat and up. So, and so Richard and I went and we had work. And she turned out to have all these extraordinary letters from Orwell to her aunt. And Richard bought those two and donated <sighs> them to the archive. And so I started off with about 50 completely, you know, complete bits of original material to go through, which I suppose were the bedrock of the new book. Uh, one of those great biographer's gifts the Eleanor Brenda correspondence. It, and, and it, it, it dramatically change your view in any way? They, they were fascinating because one reason was that they, Orwell's life in the 1930s is very shadowy. Um, there are long periods where you don't really know what he was doing, where he was, who he was associated. And this was, this was wonderful just simply for, you know, for having a date and a place. But then there were all kinds of... Uh, he tended to write... I don't... Uh, the two women knew each other, but not well. And Orwell tends to sort of write variant versions of the letters to, you know, to each of them as he's, as he's going. But there was some wonderful stuff. There were some extraordinary letters that he'd written from London just as he'd come back from his trip to, the, to Kent picking hops, that, uh, that he wrote a hop-picking uh, diary, which uh, then became newspaper articles and also is the basis of uh, Section 2 of A Clergyman's Daughter, his second novel. So he comes back and he, he, he's writing these letters uh, to Eleanor and to Brenda from, from London. And this is a time of national crisis. Um, we're about to have a national government. We're about to go off the gold standard. And Orwell writes these letters to his girlfriend saying, um, you know, the situation here is very serious. Ah, it's Marsha. This Hello. is good news. This is good news. So, so sorry. not to worry. Marsha, come and join us. Everything, everything was against me. Yes. We're delighted yes. that you've been able to come. Mm. So how revelatory were these letters? They were fascinating. It's a, as I say, it's a time of great public disturbance. And he was working, and he was, he was trying to sort of work at Billingsgate, just near to the Bank of England. The fish market. So, yes, the fish market. So he's just on the doorstep of where all these things are happening. And Orwell writes something like, uh, this is all very serious, but I don't very, know very much about politics, and nor am I interested in them. It's a bit surprising is, at that stage in his life, isn't it? He's what, in his late 20s? Even in his stage? late 20s, I found that a bit surprising. Later on, uh, there's a very interesting letter. To, he also had this habit with both women of kind of writing about things that were in his head that were going into his books. And so, for example, when he comes back from Spain, the Spanish Civil War, at the end of at halfway through 1937, one of the first things he does, and this is just as he's beginning work on Homage to Catalonia, he sits down and writes this lengthy letter to Eleanor where he sets out his views on the Spanish situation in some ways more succinctly and cogently 
than some of the writing in Homage to Catalonia. And so he's using the women as sounding boards. He's keeping them up to date with things. And the other the other thing that I I took from, took from both these correspondences that was that once Orwell got a woman into his head, he couldn't let her out of it. And so, uh, for example, Brenda visits him in University College Hospital just before he dies in 1949. And I can remember Eleanor's daughter Susanna uh, remembering how her mother burst into tears in January 1950 when the news came through on the radio. So it's a kind of eternal golden braid in both cases going through there. But you obviously don't have the other side of this, these correspondences. No, this is, the, fast, this is yeah. the, the really unfortunate thing. And I got fascinated, actually, particularly by Orwell's relationship with Eleanor, which I think in some ways is duplicated by others of a relationship with women, whereby she engaged herself to his best friend. And it's in Southwell was a very small place. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can remember Eleanor's daughter saying that this, this three-way thing was common knowledge and her poor mother in sort of 1932 would walk down Southwold High Street and she would hear an old lady say another she go with that Collins boy <laughs> you know, so, you know. Yeah. Mm. and so so the fascination of the relationship with uh, Eleanor which I think is, is duplicated with other relationships or possibly even non-relationships that he failed to conduct with women is that she engages herself to his best friend and yet there's a series of letters that all writes her in, in 1933, 1934 where he seems to be presuming that there's still something going on. And they're all shrouded in subterfuge. And also they, they show just how sort of tightly pleased relationships were in those days, even by people in their late 20s and early 30s. And so Orwell will write, you know, uh, why don't we go and have tea in Lowestoft just down the coast? And I could send a telegram to my parents and tell them my bike's broken down. And, 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 at that age, and this, yes, that is that surprising, age, and, isn't it? And I think a lot, Brenda at some point wasn't allowed to see him at one point because her father was a clergyman and regarded him as not respectable. Not respectable. But mm. the fascination of this, because we don't have Eleanor's side of the correspondence, yeah. And, you know, she'd made it, as far as we can understand, she'd made a decision. She was going to marry Dennis, and this was irrevocable. And I just had a suspicion that Orwell is actually deluding himself and that he's projecting things onto this relationship that aren't there. This on, She's going it's to not ongoing. And the, the same kind of thing happens when he, I mean, he, he tried to have a relationship later when he was married to Eileen his first wife, with one of her best friends, a woman called Lydia Jackson. And there are all these letters. Oh, you weren't there when I called. Oh, if I came round. We don't have Lydia's side of the correspondence. And she always maintained that she didn't really like him, you know, but felt sorry for him. And part of me thinks he's just making stuff up. Yeah. And, and that fascinated me too. He was sort of slightly take it or leave it, wasn't he, at the same time somehow in these letters? Well, yeah. some of the letters to Brenda, the later ones, are really kind of, they're either distressed or they're mock distressed. Mm. Uh, and there's all sort of stuff about, you know, when I, when I trample as a, like a worm as I am, it's kind of... <laughs> and you wonder whether he, he's putting some of this on. But he, I mean, he had very old-fashioned attitudes towards women, very peculiar attitudes towards women as well, I think. But the, the Brenda Eleanor correspondence sets whole acres of his pre-Second World War life into focus for me. So I was extraordinarily fortunate yeah. to, to have them. And also thinking about other new material, I know, mm. you, obviously, you spoke to people who knew him for your first mm. book, but you've spoken to different people for this, haven't you? Well, another aspect of the biographical challenge when the subject is long dead. I mean, all's been dead 73 years. In the late 1990s, early 2000s, when I set work on the original book, there are any number of hale 75 and 80-year-olds around who, you know, were young literary people yep. who remembered him, who'd been in pubs with him. Who, and that was all great. The downside of that, of course, is that when you're dealing with celebrated literary figures, you know, if you go and talk, as I did, to Anthony Pohl when he was late 80s, they only remember what's in their memoirs. So if you say to someone like Anthony Pope, 
I believe you knew George Orwell, Mr. Pohl. And Pohl would go, mm, yes, well, of course. You know, and out would come all this stuff. And i go, oh, yes, I read that in your memoirs. Yeah. Could you kind of... And, Something else, and the please. the problem about those kind of interviews is that those people, they remember what they remember and they have forgotten what they have forgotten. I, I mean, I talk in the book about the dwindling number of Orwell survivors. And I'm sure Marsha will corroborate this from her own Orwell research. There are so few of them left. And I sat down with Richard Blair, Orwell's adopted son, not long ago. And he is the youngest of them. And he's in his 80th year. And we tried to work out how many people there were left in the world who knew Orwell. And when we added my discoveries to them, which yeah. you know, were seven is that all? Seven people. So where I, I tended to do my research amongst, and you always get more, I find, more fascinating perspectives here. If you talk to people, if you can find them, who knew your subjects before they were celebrated, oh, yeah. you get a complete... I found this in Southwold. I, I, did, I did a lot of work in Southwold talking to uh, descendants of, for example, the woman who had cleaned Orwell's parents' house in mm-hmm. Southwold in the early 1930s, Mrs May, who turned out to be much more than a servant. She was a, a kind of accomplice of Orwell's mother's and used to lend her money, which she lost really? at the bridge table and this sort of thing, and, and was the recipient of the engagement ring that Orwell brought back from Burma, intending to present to Jacintha Buddicombe, his first serious girl. How was she the recipient of that engagement ring? Because uh, she was owed money by Mrs. Blair. Oh, I see. And uh, it was a kind of, it's it's, it's not just a kind of monetary transaction. It was one of those ones where an employer decides to reward a servant to whom she owns money. Yeah. He'll have this wonderful signet ring. And it's still in the family. It's still in Mrs. May's family, you know, all these nearly a, nearly a century later. So, so she knew everything. She knew everything. And the Orwell attitude, the, the Southall attitude to Orwell is completely fascinating because in 1984, for example, when they, it, was, it was suggested they have a sort of pageant or some sort of memorial event, and a lot of the older people in Southall were very much against it and said things like, well, what did he ever do for us? Only came back here to sponge off his parents. Real ne'er-do-well, waster. Walked around, and they'd say things like, walked around three days away from a shave. Looked like a spring poet, somebody once said to me. But I found the other absolute god's end, I found, in terms of... I, I managed to track down... The daughter of Richard Blair's nanny, Sarah Cox, who remembered being on Jura in 1946 with Orwell. The island where they lived That's right, and had wonderful memories of Orwell reading to her and taking her fishing and how... uh, And this is a constant, actually, through everybody's memories, how good he was with children. A little bit unexpected, it seemed to me. That's right. And then then another absolutely extraordinary story. I was talking to, uh, say, the descendants of Mrs May, and a a lady said to me... um, were you at Norwich School? And I said, yes, I was. Did you know a boy called Bob Ward? And I said, well, yes, I did, actually. He was rather a friend of mine. Well, you ought to go and see his father, Stuart, who's still alive at the age of 92. And Mr Ward, the grandson of Mrs Jessie May, the, the Blair family's daily help. Yeah. And he had vivid memories of Orwell coming back to Southwold in 1939 for his father's death and funeral and uh, how kind he was to him. You know, all the children were intimidated by the fact that he was six foot three. You know, a cousin said, you know, he went on forever. You, know, you looked <laughs> up and there's yeah. this but uh, again and he you know he could he could sort of come out with all this stuff 84 years later uh, Nash have you caught your breath absolutely <laughs> I'm sorry about not keeping you all waiting not at all I mean we're delighted to have you because um, you know you are indeed an author yourself George Orwell and Russia I wanted to ask you actually I mean you grew up in Russia didn't you oh yes, yes. I lived there till 91 when I came to London to work for the Russian service of the BBC 
Am I right in understanding that Orwell's books have always been available in Russia? No, not not at all. They were not available till the start of Gorbachev's perestroika in 1988. But uh, the books did get into Russia. They were disseminated in Russia by covertly by two different ways. Either Russian translations were brought in to the country, into the Soviet Union, by travelers, sportsmen, scientists who were allowed out, actors who smuggled in deliberately small books that had been published abroad. High risk to bring one of those back in. But uh, these books were typed, uh, typed in about 10 copies. You can imagine how difficult it was to read the 10th copy done on an ordinary typewriter. Yes. But also sometimes English originals got through. There were even fewer of those, I would imagine. But still people got hold of them and translated them themselves. There are several translations that were done then uh, by the enthusiasts who then did the same procedure uh, of disseminating them. So two words originated at that time. Some is that which means self-publishing, typing, and tam is that, which means their publishing. Tam is there, that is abroad. So interesting. I mean, I know the KGB took an interest in Orwell, didn't they, during his lifetime? Very much so. When he wrote Animal Farm, Mm. and especially in 1984, they even decided to prepare a special edition for the in a party, so to speak, for the Politburo, the top of the Communist Party, those who were candidates to the members of the Politburo, the whole hierarchy, uh, there was a list according to which these books were distributed. And these people were supposed to give these books back to the so-called special departments of the libraries, but not all of them did. And we know that Mikhail Gorbachev boasted at one point that he kept the whole library of these specially distributed books and never gave a single (laughs) one back. I mean, has any material emerged from, from Russia about Orwell, or is it all under wraps still? We, we had a very brief, as we can say now, respite from the all-around KGB rule. Indeed. I mean, they were always there, but they did not always have the upper hand as they do now. But for 30 years, uh, in the early 90s, some archives were open, uh, and lots of people tried to do something about it. In Leningrad, in Petersburg, where I'm from, uh, there was a wonderful scholar called Arlen Blum, his surname was, who wrote about the history of Orwell's censorship. And he saw lots of papers uh, relating to the KGB and generally authorities trying to erase Orwell 
false name from in the English literature. Uh-huh. Basically, people knew very little about him. They thought he was American. Obviously, who are the greatest enemies of uh, the Soviet Union or of the proper Russia? These are not just some Brits, you know, and they didn't know very much about him. That's why the biographies, and I brought with me this huge volume of uh, the biography that I published in Russia in 2017. It is basically the first scholarly edition of his biography telling things that nobody in Russia had known previously. Okay. We're getting towards the fringes of a very fascinating subject about which Marsha knows far more than I do. When when Orwell was in Spain in 1937, his hotel room in Barcelona was raided by um, agents working under the control of the NKVD. A lot of material was taken. There is a list of that material, letters, photographs, draft diaries and so forth. And Marsh's theory is that that material, which Orwell scholars have always regarded as a kind of holy grail of Orwell studies, you know, yeah. the last big thing we need to find. And Marsh's theory, sadly, I think, is that that material probably isn't there. Is that oh, really? right? I think that they only kept the stuff that they needed. Okay. Why did they need it? They needed it to incriminate Orwell. They were preparing, they were hoping to have a show trial like they did in Moscow with uh, people like Bukharin and uh, Zinoviev and Kamenev. So they were hoping to make up show trial exposing the poem with uh, exposing it uh, in its imaginary, of course, connections with the Spanish fascism, with Frankists. But but did he ever go to Russia? Orwell. Oh, no, no. The (laughs) Russia came to him, you know. The the Russian NKVD was very active in Spain then. They gathered a lot of papers on which they hoped to build the indictment, to build the the case against yes. Orwell. And they did. They called them Rabbit Trotsky. Rabbit Trotsky. And you see, if the Orwell, Orwell's name was on, a, was on a list, as was his wife, and if he hadn't got out of Spain halfway through 1937, and his friend, you know, his company commander, George Kopp, spent 18 months in a Barcelona jail, and it was entirely possible that he could, as Marsha said, have been indicted based on all this evidence that people spying on him when he was fighting in Spain had collected. And taken back for a show trial. Exactly, in the first six months of 1937. But he he wrote about this, didn't he? Homage to Catalonia? Didn't he write about this incident? He did, he wrote about it, but he didn't know the half of what was actually happening and the fact that his his unit had been infiltrated by communist spies. He's actually very naive about the political situation in Spain, almost until the very last moment that he's there. He's not a part of the International Brigade, which is the standard Marxist fighting force, but uh, but he, he keeps on wanting to transfer to it and you know go somewhere where the action is. And all his friends in the POUM, the sort of little sort of anarchist splinter group he was part of. No, don't. They'll bump you off. Literally, they will murder you if you go and try attempt to fight for them. And he didn't understand And he that. didn't really, until the very end, don't you think, Marsha, he didn't understand what was going on. Uh, well, I agree, but only partially, <laughs> okay. because I think uh, he pretends, in mm. the homage to Catalonia, that mm. he only learned about this offensive against the poem only when it happened in May. But the newspaper, the new leader, 
member of the International Labour Party in whose contingent Orwell was fighting. It had been writing about it since December. And he was sure to read that because in the reports to Harry Pollitt, the general secretary of the British Communist Party, the people who were spying on them say people in the poem, they all complain that they have nothing to read by the, but the new leader. So obviously this <laughs> information did come through to them. I, I'm thinking about all this. I was wondering, was Spain a very crucial moment for all finding out what definitely, was going on? It definitely was, but I tried to show that even before Spain, he had never been an enthusiast of the Soviet Union. He mm. was interested in communism, but he always was against what he called the stupid mm. cult of Russia. He was talking about half uh, gramophones and half uh, gangsters. That's mm. how he defined commissars. In Spain, he, he said, why we in England lack what I would call concentration camp literature. It is because no English writer can feel themselves a victim. For, for an English writer to write about being a victim is the same as for a slave owner to write Uncle Tom's Cabin, he said. But in real life, in Spain, he realized what it is to be a victim of an oppressive regime. That's why Spain was so important. Mm. Mm. This is fascinating, but I'm going to move us move on, on because actually us I, on. I want mm. to talk about the man and the myth. Mm. Really. I mean, David, how would you describe the Orwell myth? The Orwell myth is fascinating because everybody who discusses it tends to take their cue from something that Malcolm Muggeridge wrote in his diary, a great friend of Orwell's, and he came back after the funeral and he wrote in his diary that he sat there looking at all the obituaries in the English newspapers and seeing in them how the legend of a man is created. And that implies there was a myth. And you either, as a friend of Orwell's, you either played your part in its corroboration and its production, or you just stepped back from it. The, the curious thing about it is that the average British writer born in that spangled cohort, the Edwardian era, yes. there's so many of them, the Green, Walpole, Alden, all born in that 1900 to 1910 window. Orwell dies young. He dies at yep. 46. And so the myth solidifies immediately. And you've got this huge, almost sort of romantic scenario of the dying man struggling to finish the book. The book becomes an enormous bestseller. It doesn't just become a bestseller. It kind of redefines the politics of the East and the West. You know, the Cold War is beginning. Here's the text that, that kind of that tells you about it and foresees the way in which the world is going to turn. And so Orwell stops. If he ever had been, you know, an ordinary human being, he stops being one in January 1950 and becomes this almost sort of luminous creature about whom people then start telling stories. But was he in any sense creating his own myth during his lifetime as well? I think he well? was. No, my, my view of him is that he is very psychologically very complex, much shrewder about people and the human condition on paper than he was face to face. I mean, the number of people, especially women, who would turn around and say, well, he had no idea at all what made people tick. Also, and I, one of the other thing that interests me is the way in which he kind of, and I can only describe this as kind of stage managing his own life. Yes. Setting up situations in which 
he plays some kind of part. I mean, the, the famous one with his friend Anthony Pohl when he was invited to um, inspect the cradle of Pohl's youngest son, John Pohl, who's still alive. And, and Pohl went off to get a book or something, came back and found Orwell staring resolutely at this not very interesting picture on the far wall. And the child's cot had been disturbed. And so Pohl went and had a look. And next to little John Pohl discovers a 10-inch bowie knife what? lying in its sheath in the cot. Right. And, and as Paul says in his memoirs, this was much too big to be ignored. <laughs> so, <laughs> Absolutely. So he drew Orwell's attention to this knife, and to which Orwell said, oh, oh, yes, that. Oh, I'd forgotten I gave it to him to play with. Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. And Paul thought to himself, firstly, what's Orwell doing with a 10-inch Bowie knife in London in 1946? Fair question. Why does he think that it's a reasonable toy to give a small child to play with in his car? And it seemed to Paul, when he thought about it, that Orwell had set this up. That it was like a kind as of an Victorian, odd incident. Yeah, as, no, as a kind of almost like a Victorian genre painting. You know, right. strong man is moved by a child's. You know, but the thing was that he had to be discovered in doing it. Yes. You see, so Orwell had to be the knife had to be found. So that all in much the same way. I mean, there's another marvelous anecdote of polls about when when smart parties started up again after the Second World War, and Orwell would turn up at events where evening dress was demanded. Orwell would turn up in a shabby old tweed suit, and he would stop at the door, seeing the people in black jackets, and he would say, "Oh." Uh, is it all right if I come in dressed like this? Okay. And you see, whatever happened, Orwell can make that situation play to his advantage because if he was told he couldn't come in because it was a smart party, he would see prejudice and oppression yeah. and social structures. But if he was let in on his own terms, then it meant that he kind of conquered the social system that would... Well, does it? Though? So, I mean, it's worth saying he's an old Etonian, isn't he? Um, oh, and that was so, very important to him. Orwell, oh yes, having been at Eton was vitally important to Orwell. I mean, a lot of the people who printed his journalism in magazines had been to Eton. But it was a struggle to get him there, wasn't it? Because the family were not perhaps quite as affluent as, as their he forebears was, had been, was, and he, so he his mother was very keen for him to go. He described himself with characteristic precision he brought to social arrangements as belonging to the lower upper middle class. Uh, which Very meant that, British as he put it, that most of his knowledge was theoretical rather than practical. I mean, theoretically, he was the kind of person who dressed for dinner, but actually they only had one servant. Uh, but again, he's kind of creating, when, what I talk about creating myths, as you probably know, he wrrote a fifteen, a absolutely declamatory 15,000-word essay about his prep school. Yes, about how horrible very famous. It was. And there are yeah. links to 1984 in that. Such were the joys. Such were the joys, yeah. um, Which nobody else thought, by the way, was as terrible as he thought it was. When he starts writing entries in writers' handbooks in his 40s, we'll all say, I went to Eden, but it had no effect on me whatsoever. I have no... That doesn't seem to me to be... I think he was quite happy at Eden because he didn't rant about it. And his first act on ad adopting Richard in 1944 was to suggest that they put him down for Eden. So it can't have been that yeah, bad, exactly, can it? Exactly, exactly. In a later review, he was mm. much more grateful to mm. Eton. Of mm. course, he was saying this was the place that gave every boy a chance. an opportunity, yeah. well, a indeed. chance you could be to, independent. Be, to be yeah. what he could mm. be. Mm. And generally, David, I would <clears throat> think that every writer, I mean, a writer of a certain calibre, mm. stage manages his biography. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you, yeah. If uh, you think of Hemingway, for example... <laughs> Or even know, war is another example. More. But mm. Orwell's myth in uh, uh, Russia, where I mm. come from, mm. is 
absolutely different. Mm. It is a myth of somebody who by some miracle could understand the way we lived with all the little detail. That was fascinating. Mm. The smell when you enter the huge mansions, the lift mm. not working. Mm. Of course, nobody in the Soviet Union could imagine that lifts could fail to work <laughs> in Britain as well. But, but uh, it wasn't just that. It was the feeling of somebody under incredible oppression and yet protesting against it. Everybody, well, lots of people, I wouldn't say everybody, mm. but lots of people in the Soviet Union were secret rebels. And uh, the fact that somebody from abroad could understand it and mm. could be compassionate about it and showed that there is no decent way out of this situation if you have a really oppressive totalitarian government. That was very important. It's very interesting that Marcia should say that because I've heard Burmese people say the well, same thing. I was going to about, ask yes, about... Yes, because um, I've heard... I remember somebody, a Burmese person, saying to me once that in Burma they regard Orwell as having written a trilogy... The first book is Burmese Days, the second is Animal Farm, the third is 1984. And the, the idea of being constantly under surveillance, I think Orwell always thought that he was being spied on, even when he was a child, but certainly this became more obvious to him when he was in Burma. And the letters don't survive, but he certainly wrote a couple of letters back to a friend in 1923-24, saying that, you know, in, in which the friend, Jacintha Bullockham, said that he gave the impression that, that he was being spied on, that his letters were being read. And was it true? But by whom? I don't think that it was. This mm. was just domestic correspondence. Was it just, you know, just I, the, the oppressive nature of colonial society? There is, a, there is this famous paragraph in Burmese days where he said, you know, that the essence of an imperial society is that you scarcely dare to say anything in the thought that somebody will hear it and report it yes. back. And that's often seen as one of the kind of the kernels of, of 1984, 15 years later. Uh, I remember the episode, I think, from the road to Wigan Pier, mm. where he tells about a nighttime conversation mm. with uh, uh, a fellow traveller in the direct sense of the word in, uh, yes. on the train, where they both complained of the horrible colonial system to each other, exchanging episodes. Okay. And once the train got into the station, they both felt embarrassed, ashamed, ashamed. and slightly scared. To have and shared that. Because, that marvelous, yes. because a, they could have been denounced. There's so, a wonderful sentence where it was saying, in the haggard dawn we parted as guiltily as any adulterous couple. So however mm. true... And real or not, this, this obsession grew with totalitarianism and oppression, and it ran through all the work. And then in 1984, we see it come to full flood. Yes, I mean, the problem for Orwell biographers, I mean, for any Orwell scholar, is, uh, to use a fancy word, is teleology. Because of the great achievement of 1984, the temptation is to start with 1984 and work backwards, you know, to see all the little things, the incremental steps that, that lead you to it. But it is actually possible to do that. I mean, it hadn't struck me for ages, but I, some time ago I worked out that, in fact, all Orwell's novels, even Animal Farm, have the same plot. 
even going back to the, the realistic ones set in England in the 1930s, they're all about rebellions that fail. They're all about people who decide to rebel yes. against the oppressor. I mean, even Dorothy in A Clergyman's Daughter does this. They rebel against the oppressive circumstances that surround them, and it doesn't work. And more or less, they find this. Flory in Burmese days is an extreme case. He shoots himself. But more or less, you end up where you were with yeah. something possibly very, very slightly changed, but probably not much. And so always the oppressive forces that have ground you down continue to grind you down. And that's that's a given in all his books going back to 1933. So clearly, to use a terrible modern word, the mindset was there from a very early stage. Do you think, do you I, think I, Marcia? I think he was a romantic in the mm. first place. He had mm. a very romantic mindset mm. and he always looked for the ways for a human or for an animal, mm -hmm. to find a better life. Mm -hmm. But uh, the sociological, the sober part of his, proved to him that it's probably impossible. When 1984 was published, it was 1949, I think, wasn't it? I know one of the critics at the time wondered how it would remain relevant as it was felt to be so timely in the moment. And it is a fascinating thing that it has persisted. Every generation, subsequent generation, feels that it's for them, don't they? They find, every generation finds something in it. And in fact, I mean, well, we said it was a warning rather than a, a prophecy. But I remember Peter Davison, the great, great Orwell scholar who died last year, uh, who edited the complete works, sat down and composed a list of what he thought the things Orwell had got right. And it was extraordinary. It was things like deforestation, the national lottery, the circulation of pornography to the working class, all these kind of things he, he kind of itemised. And its original immediacy, I think, in 1949 was because it faithfully reproduced the conditions of post-war England. But it's kind of gone on from there. It's lost its original realist setting in that world, and it's gone on to colonise a new world of surveillance culture. I mean, and it, was, the, it was the first dystopian the novel written when dystopias had been seen. Would that be fair to say? Well... Seen and documented. Uh, that, well, possibly, because, I mean, Zamyatin had wrote in 1922, didn't he, when the Soviet revolution was well underway. Okay. Um, Huxley's kind of extrapolating a materialist future from the world of sort of Hollywood and consumerism of the late 19... But in Germany, it's, in the Soviet Germany, bloc, yes, it, it yes. had been real. Um, what he wrote there, about was real on the ground, there are other the kind of 30s novels that sort of foreshadow... Was it but that's the big one, not. isn't it? That's the that one is, everyone that knows. That is the big one. It's the one everybody knows, and it's certainly the one that made the most impact and the one that was you know, used for the most political purposes. And today, why we remember it for and why mm. it strikes again, at least in relation to Russia, with its relevance... It's the way the human mind, the human soul can be affected by all this propaganda. It's difficult to believe in it. But today when we see people actually believing in the official propaganda supporting the war of Ukraine mm. and people who had been skeptical in the Soviet years, they seem to take it all on board not everybody, obviously, but there are people who do trust what they are told. And uh, Orwell was saying probably in the same way as you can breed hornless cows, you can breed people who do not strive for freedom. And uh, with the 70 years, or more than 70, 100 years now, 70 years of the Soviet rule, you can see that it does affect people. And uh, this is uh, today seems of extreme importance. And 
why it works, because it is based on lies. Well, this rings us to Donald Trump, doesn't it? I mean, is, is it true that it 1984 true. became the number one bestseller in the States when Trump it lied about the size Amazon, of the audience Amazon at his inauguration? by 950% in the weeks. So, it also so. takes us back to Orwell's journalism and his insistence that, that certain ways of writing needed to be adhered to to avoid the propaganda, the mind speak and all the rest of it. Mm. Well, I, I want to read out from um, mm. Penguin edition called mm. Why I Write, because mm. as an editor, this really strikes me as, well, it, it's something that Hazel and I do when we edit articles, isn't it, Hazel? Never use a metaphor, simile or other figure of speech which you are used to seeing in print. In other words, avoid cliches. Never use a long word where a short one will do. If it's possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. Never use the passive when you can use the active. Never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word or a jargon word if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. See, I love this. The reason I'm smiling is it's on my own study wall too. That's what we do. And then at the end, the last number six is break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. Yeah, but I mean, it, you know, it is, it's, it's a recipe for accurate mm, writing, mm, isn't it? Mm. I'm going to move us on because I, I know, David, that you need to go. And I want to talk about legacy. We've touched on mm. it. I mean, in many ways, it's the language he's left behind that's, that, in, that seems to me almost the greatest legacy. The words that everyone knows that they don't even know come from Orwell. Oh, yes. Oh, one finds this all the time. 101, Big Brother, all that kind of, you know, the, the fact that there are reality shows, you know, that have been extrapolated for this is, I suppose, something would have, Orwell himself would have thought amusing. But I think it's, it's actually more than that. You, you certainly find this with writers, with literary people, in that Orwell's style is one of the most seductive things on the planet. If you were wanting to find a way, a template to teach you how to write as a young writer, you couldn't do much, much better than, than Orwell's writing. And I mean, there is, there's something about the immediacy of that. I mean, when I first read his description of book reviewing, which he describes as kissing the bums of verminous little lions, and I thought, well, here's, here's someone who really, really sort of knows the literary scene. No, there's, uh, you know, you read uh, the most sort of casual scraps of journalism, you know, that he probably typed straight onto the typewriter in the early 1940s. The the clarity of thought, the absolute precision of expression, and also something tantalising, something that makes you want to go a bit further. Read the writer he's writing about, or, you know, look at the speech of the politician he's talking about. He's not just solidifying thought, he's pushing you forward into other sort of areas of of inquiry, which is always interesting. I mean, he is, you know, in terms of a pro style, he is the man. You know, it's worth saying, I think, worth pointing out that not all his predictions came true, did they? I mean, totalitarianism didn't engulf Europe, and government says we've said didn't need to torture to make people embrace doublethink. We lap it up for ourselves in many areas of life. But how significant was he as a writer? I'd like you both to get your teeth into that. Well, again, for people reading him in Russia, he was of an immense significance because it's recognising the things that exist till now. It's the first thing is, of course, this ubiquitous lying. The second thing, I would say, is the absurdity of the totalitarian regime, which was first noticed by Boris Suvarin Suvarin in his uh, pamphlet, The Nightmare, in uh, the USSR, where he gives the examples of uh, the accused at the trial being indicted with selling Kremlin towers or things like that. And today, when you see somebody is fined for having a dream about President Zelensky, 
And you remember three hens in Animal Farm who had a mm. dream about the snowball inciting them to poison the pond. You know, you think... How did he know? And uh, it is the clarity of his thought. It's not just writing, but the clarity of his thought that enabled him to pinpoint the important features of totalitarianism. And uh, we, we can name them, you know, as, as uh, the fragility of a human being, that uh, it is very difficult for an ordinary human being to withstand uh, the propaganda, for a braver person to withstand the torture. The torture is there, and it's uh, obvious that the Propaganda influences not only people who it is directed at within the country, but as Orwell said in his preface to the Ukrainian edition of Animal Farm, how it affects civilized people in the democratic countries. Yeah. And we come across in this country and all over the world people who lap up Putin's propaganda Indeed. today. So this is well, what that's the legacy, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is absolutely, yes. David. I agree with all of. I agree with everything Marsha has said, and I come to Orwell as someone who's led a, a rather retiring provincial English life. These are things that happen in foreign countries, unfortunately. That that doesn't yeah. mean that they might not necessarily happen here. What I suppose what I always go back to with Orwell was his whole. If you're examining the totality of his work, those 21 volumes, you know, written over 17 or 18 years. I always go back to his essay on Charles Dickens, where he goes through all the things that Dickens isn't, you know, all the things that Dickens has been claimed for by people over time. You know, he examines Dickens's radicalism and his political views. And the end up, he says, ultimately, Dickens's message can be summed up in two words, which are behave better <laughs> or behave decently, um, which, as Orwell said, is either an extraordinary cliche uh, or the most important thing that you can say to anybody about anything. I you know, would obviously believe the latter. And that's what I get out of Orwell, ultimately. It's, it's not, obviously, the, the prophecy, the political war, they're all extremely important, but ultimately it's about people getting on better with each other by behaving better and being genuinely selfless. I mean, the, his essay on King Lear is very good about this. If you want to behave selflessly, then behave selflessly, not in a way that is quietly going to, you know, gain advantage for yourself. And I think that's an invaluable lesson. And a positive for, one. A, a positive one. A challenge. Yeah. Live decently is, is a very good motto. Do as you would be done by. Yes. We can all yes. agree on that one. Yeah. Marsha, David, thank you very much indeed for being with us. It was great. Thank you very much. Um, now, before we get on to book recommendations, uh, sadly, Marsha's had to leave us, but I realise I haven't asked how everything is going at Slightly Fox. So, Gail, Hazel, what's happening? We've got our 80th issue coming out very soon which marks 20 years. Let's just say it again, 20 years. It's 20, a real achievement. 20 years, yes, it is, it is. I can't believe really. Congratulations. Mm. And we've got a lovely memoir by a man called Nicholas Fisk, who was a children's writer, called Pig Ignorant, which is about growing up in London during the Blitz and afterwards. 
beautifully illustrated by James Nunn. And we're producing a calendar of some of our favourite covers for next year, which is some great size, yeah. a thing of beauty and joy, I would say. Like everything else that you produce. Particularly a nice one, I think, this year. And we have a fun book, don't we? We have an account yes. of a, a young woman called Joanna Rakoff, who in the 90s went to work for a literary agency in New York. Their authors included J.D. Salinger. Mm-hmm. And she arrived, it's about 1994, and they still didn't have computers. 94? in 1994 computers and she didn't really know what a literary agency did and it's the tale of her first year there working there and And it's about her love life as well because she she's dumped her college boyfriend and is living with a marxist would-be marxist writer who turns out to be a total flake (laughs) and she's living in really really grim surroundings and eventually uh, well i won't say what happens at the end but anyhow it is it's a lovely story and you can so identify with you know going off to your first job with you know and your mother's helped you buy supposedly suitable clothes and you've got no money and you're finding your way in the world it's called my salinger year by joanna rakoff and it's it's that time of year isn't it reader's day is coming it's reader's day on the 4th of november at the art workers guild which is where we always have it a few tickets are still available if anybody's interested and they really are hot cakes those tickets every year so if you do fancy it grab one up right now so david is going to come and talk about orwell That'll be great. Richard Hawkin, who has already done a podcast about Adrian Bell, will be talking on the same subject. Yes, listen to that in the back catalogue. That was a good one. Um, Sarah Wheeler is talking about her travel writing, and we've had her as a guest before. She was very early on, I think, when we were a brand new podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And then Olivia Potts, who's a cookery writer, who's also, she's talked about um, cookery books. She's coming to talk about her new book, which is all about butter, which we've all been told is now a healthy thing to eat. I'm glad to hear that, personally. And then we've got Stig Abel in conversation with Susie Fay about his new, his first crime novel, which is just about Really? To come out. Everyone is writing crime now, aren't yeah. they? Have you noticed so, that? Yeah. Oh, that'll be so People good. People love reading about crime. Well, yes, and you usually recommend excellent crime writers for us. So, no, that's great. Thank you very much. Slightly Foxed is an independent publishing house based in East London. It was founded 20 years ago by Gail Perkis and Hazel Wood, with a quarterly magazine for literary nonconformists highlighting an eclectic mix of lost and forgotten books. The contributors are equally eclectic. Some are distinguished authors, journalists or academics. Others, though, come from very different walks of life. Now, Slightly Fox has a global readership in over 90 countries. As well as four printed issues a year, a subscription opens up a world of good reading with access to the full digital archive of back issues. That's more than a thousand articles to explore. And members also receive discounts on books and special offers from partner organisations. All this for just £56 a year for readers in the UK and Ireland and £64 overseas. And if you're age 30 or under, there's a 10% discount. You can find more information, sign up, or buy a single trial issue of the magazine by visiting the website, foxquarterly.com. The web address and other relevant links are also in the show notes on your podcast app. Or if you would rather speak to a human being, please telephone the office on 020 0258. Thank you. Okay, so book recommendations. I think we're going to start with Gail. Well, I read a a lovely book over the summer, rather unexpected, 
and it's called Goshawk Summer by James Aldred. And it's a diary of three months in 2020. It starts as lockdown is happening. And he's a wildlife photographer and he's been commissioned to go to the New Forest and film a family of goshawks. So he sets off on the day he, he goes off to try to find a nest to film. And he meets one of the rangers and they walk a long way into the conifer forest and they eventually find a larch, a pair of larches, um, in one of which there's a big goshawk nest. He has to climb the tree, first of all, gets to 50 foot, then has to build a hide, then has to haul all his camera equipment up there. And the poor man sits there for hours and hours okay. filming. And I suppose one of the joys of the book was learning just how much patience and knowledge wildlife photographers need to do their job. When he starts, the female goshawk, who's twice as large as the male, is sitting on the nest with three eggs. She sits there for an entire month and she goes off very, very briefly because apparently goshawks, female goshawks have a bare patch of skin on their breast that gives direct contact with the eggs to incubate them. So the male can't do that. It okay. has to be the female. Interesting. And then, of course, the eggs hatch and then both parents are furiously feeding and he's sitting there and he's, he's obviously watching what's going on, but he's also observing what else is happening. And he takes a few days off. He goes and films a family of fox cubs. And to do that, he has to sit in a, literally in the middle of a stream beneath a bank to get a clear view of the cubs when they come out of, of the earth. It's full of observant detail. And then, of course, lock, the first lockdown lifts and the new forest is absolutely swamped with rather badly behaved people having fun loving being free again yeah um, which obviously makes his life much harder but it is it's an enchanting book and it's I was surprised that I enjoyed it so much and that it stuck in the memory and I have to say that in woods very near us we have a pair of goshawks and I see them almost on a daily basis but to learn exactly how they behave they're hunters of the forest and they can fly at speed through trees like fighter pilots like fighter pilots yeah so I, rec I do recommend it. And then the title again? It's called Goshawk Summer by James Aldred. So Steph Allen has just popped the table because she's got a book up her sleeve that she wants to tell us about. I do. This is a book that's doing the rounds at Slightly Foxed at the moment. Jenny recommended that I read it. I'm going to hand it on to Jess afterwards. Okay. It's by Edward Chisholm. It's called A Waiter in Paris, Adventures in the Dark Heart of the City. And it's very dark and inspired by Orwell's Down and Out in London and Paris. Yeah. So little seems to have changed. Orwell published his book in 1933. This was written in 2011-2012. Edward Chisholm followed his girlfriend to Paris. She left him. I'm reading the book. Initially, you can see why. He, he was a frustrated writer who went through a series of jobs and he became a runner in a very upmarket Parisian restaurant with the intention of becoming a waiter. But it's, it's a really, really tough life. Um, uh, there, <laughs> there are lots of misadventures. They work long, exhaustive hours, treated very badly by the management. But it's a fantastic read. It really is. It's the underbelly of Parisian life. You probably won't want to eat in a Paris restaurant <laughs> after reading it. That's um, a great recommendation. That yes. was the first of all Wales books I ever read. I loved it. Yes. Well, this, this is great. It also uh, has quite short chapters, which I think for those of us who do a lot of reading, is quite good. So I can really recommend it as a great, fun, dark, addictive read. Okay. And the title again? A Waiter in Paris, Adventures in the Dark Heart of the City. So... 
David, what have you got for us? Well, something uh, Parisian as well, actually. Um, every summer uh, for about the last five or six years, I sit, I've sat down and re-read my favourite French novel, which is Zola's La Samoire. English translation would be The Drinking Den. And it's a work of what would technically be called naturalism in the proper sense, meaning nature working itself out. And so humanity are just sort of piti- pitiful insects clinging onto the sides of precipices until the wind comes and blows them away. And it's about this sweet, good-natured girl called Gervaise who just wants a quiet life. She says once that her ambition is just simply to live and die in her own bed and watch her children grow up. And she has this ambition to open her own laundry. And this is in, uh, you know, Second Empire, France. You get a strong sense she doesn't and get any she of this, do, It all goes <laughs> horribly wrong. But that's the thing about naturalism, you see. It's the thing about my other... I mean, I like American equivalents like Steinbeck and Dreiser and Farrell. And it always, you know, it's, it's all himself once said about Jack London's famous story about the shipwrecked sailors. You know, you just know that the rescue boat will only arrive five minutes after the cabin boy's throat has been cut. <laughs> and that's what La Samoire is like. It's Gervais's misfortune to fall in with Lantier, who is this cannibalistic man who just attaches himself to women and sucks them dry and ruins their businesses and then moves on. And it all ends, you know, tragically and horribly in the way that Zola's novel do. But there's something so uh, atmospheric about it, people fighting against unignorable and irrevocable destiny, but still smiling as they go down. And it's the social detail of 19th century France is just extraordinarily well rendered. So I, I get more out of it every time I read it, and it must be about six or seven times now. It sounds like a good read for the dark months, doesn't the it? The drinking den, the drinking den. And the, it's the, the fatal thing, the thing you mustn't drink is the pure vitriol, you know, the, the absinthe, the, the, absinthe the, the killer spirit, but she ends up doing it in the end. And Why it are we not surprised? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hazel. Well, I'm going to recommend a book that I was given to read in the summer. It's called Patchwork by Claire Wilcox, and she is the head of fashion at the V&A. And it's a strange book in a way because it's a sort of series of glimpses into her past seen through the sort of prism of, cl- of the clothes, you know, starting with the haberdasher's shop that her mother kept where she would be among all the bindings and so on and a sort of vision of her mother and the billowing sheets. She hung them up. The clothes that her mother wore at her wedding, her husband's suit, you know, she takes you, in a sense, through her life. But she talks about the spaces between the words in the sense that she doesn't explain very much about her own life. Uh, but I think where the book, in a way, comes alive even more is in the V&A, because she's obviously just in love with the whole business of not, not fashion in terms of labels, but fashion in terms of the clothes that she's working on in the fantastic conservation department at the V&A and its kind of shady corridors. You know, you get this sort of sense of the past very, very strongly. You know, there are, there are funny little bits, actually. In, in Jubilee year, she was working in a sex shop where she had to send out crotchless knickers to everybody. <laughs> you know, that's one of the... But, Um, She also talks about how, in a way, sort of engaging with what other people felt when wearing these clothes or guessing at it helped her with things like the death of her small son. It's quite a sort of mysterious book, but very gripping. Delicate and and liminal, personality. Yes, very delicate. And she's obviously just obsessed with her job. So I would recommend it. Thank you very much. Such an interesting batch. Thank you. That brings us neatly to a close for this episode. Uh, Head to the episode show notes on your podcast app or indeed the Fox website, foxquarterly.com, to find all the books and writers we mentioned today. That's foxquarterly.com, where you can, of course, also subscribe to the luscious quarterly magazine now in its 20th year. 
The podcast will be back in January with a new host and a new producer. Sadly, very sadly, pressure of work means that series producer Lynn Jones and I do need to step away after five years and this will be our final episode. Now, having had all the fun of launching the podcast with the Foxes and recording nearly 50 episodes, we're, both, we're really sorry to go, aren't we, Lynn? We're sad to see you go. Very sorry to. We're going to miss you. We're going to miss the team and Hoxton Square. And honestly, it's been a privilege. People say this, but it actually has been a genuine privilege to meet all the amazingly knowledgeable guests who've sat here with us. I mean, it's been so fun, hasn't it? We've had great discussions. It's been a real treat. Thank you. Thank you. Coffee's great. <laughs> That's yeah. important. <laughs> and thank you to everyone for listening too. I mean, we wouldn't be uh, we wouldn't be a successful podcast without you. Special thanks to the huge number of you who've been kind enough to let us know just how much you love the podcast. We very much appreciated every single one of your messages and reviews. Lynn and I will definitely be listening in to all the future episodes. I am already looking forward to January's. Are we able to say what January's is going to be about? Yes, it's yes. going to be on Dodie Smith. Dodie Smith. You see, I'm missing it already. Until then, thanks for being with us and for joining us on another literary trek off the beaten track. Mm